Winston Churchill was getting quite old, and someone noticed this and asked him, are you ready to meet God? Churchill deadpanned, I am prepared to meet my maker, but whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Churchill thought that was pretty funny. I doubt that God would agree. But friends, this foolish quote brings us to the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning, which is, what will it be like when you and I stand before Almighty God? Because make no mistake, friends, one day we each and all will stand before God for judgment. And in fact, those of us who know Christ will dwell in God's very presence for all eternity. And so being in the presence of God is something that we ought to think about because it's something we all will do someday and hopefully most of us will do for all the ages to come. And so that's what we're going to talk about today as we look at a very interesting and famous passage in which a man did stand before God in an amazing experience that revealed an essential aspect of God's character and which profoundly transformed this man's life. And that's what we're going to see today in Isaiah chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, please turn there. And this morning we're going to look at just two points. First, we're going to see what happened when God revealed himself to Isaiah. And then second, we're going to talk about what we should take from Isaiah's experience in this chapter. So let's begin with our first point, in which we see what happened when God revealed himself to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, we come to what is probably the first part of the story of Isaiah, chronologically speaking. We said last week that chapters 1 through 5 were a series of messages Isaiah probably preached later in his ministry, but which form a great introduction to this book. But here in chapter 6, I think we find Isaiah as a young man, and his life is about to head off in a direction that he does not expect at all. Now, we know very little about the personal life of Isaiah. We're going to talk about Isaiah's wife and his two sons next week. But this week, I want to focus on his father. In chapter 1, verse 1 of this book, we learn that Isaiah was the son of a man named Amos. Now, Amos is not a significant figure in the Bible, so we cannot say anything certain about him. But archaeologists have discovered objects from the right time period that speak of a scribe named Amos. And what is a scribe? A scribe is someone whose job it was to write down official records. You know, everybody wasn't literate back then, and that was an important job. And so perhaps Amos the scribe was Isaiah's father. I think that's very possible because 2 Chronicles 26 says that Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written the rest of the acts of King Uzziah from first to last. Isaiah also seems to have been a scribe, composing court records for the Davidic kings in Jerusalem. This position would have given Isaiah unique access to the king and to governmental officials. It would have given him unique insight into what was going on in the palace, uh, and unique awareness into what was going on in all matters domestic and international. And so Isaiah would have known that some important things were happening in his country as we pick up in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Yes, I know we have Isaiah and Uzziah, but we're gonna, I'm going to try to keep... King Uzziah together, so you guys can, can follow this a little bit more easily. King Uzziah had been a fairly good king. 
Second Chronicles 26.3 says, Uzziah reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. King Uzziah had a long reign, and he had a deep desire to honor God. And according to the Mosaic Covenant, God responded to King Uzziah's loyalty with material prosperity. That is not the way that things work for Christians under the New Covenant today, but it was how things worked for ancient Israel. And so Uzziah's godliness brought stability and prosperity. But 2 Chronicles 26.16 says, When he was strong, Uzziah grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. One day, Uzziah decided he was going to go to God's temple. Not just to the outer court, where all Israelite men could go. He wanted to go into the inner part, where only the priests could go. Because he was the king. Of course, the problem was, he was the king. He wasn't a priest. Kings came from one tribe. Priests came from another. God intended there to be a division of, of power, a separation of these two powers, not consolidated in one person. And Uzziah defied that. And he did what only the priests were allowed to do. He burned incense to God on the incense altar. And when the priests tried to correct him, Uzziah got angry. And so we read in 2 Chronicles 26, 19, When he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So in the middle of this time of great prosperity, suddenly the royal court is thrown into crisis and there is an unexpected transition of power. This probably happened about nine or ten years before our passage begins today. Now remember, Isaiah is the royal biographer of King Uzziah. He would have been close to this situation. He would have seen how this crisis unfolded, and he would have seen that it set his country on a really bad trajectory. I think there were two things that would have very much concerned Isaiah. First, King Uzziah had been a godly king up until he was struck down. And this godliness is why the nation flourished. But Uzziah's son Jotham was less godly than his father. Second Chronicles 27 says that Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except he did not enter the temple of the Lord. And the people still followed corrupt practices. Israelites were to go to the temple to offer sacrifices for their sins. Jotham said, not me. I don't want to deal with my sins. So he didn't obey God. And more than that, he tolerated evil in his society. More than that, it seems very likely that by the time Isaiah chapter 6 begins... Jotham would have had a teenage son, a boy named Ahaz. And we're going to see next week that Ahaz becomes one of the most wicked men in the whole Bible. And so Isaiah can see the trajectory of the kingship, and it is bending in an evil direction. And this would concern him greatly. If that's the way the leadership is going, judgment will fall on the country. Second, being so close to governmental officials, Isaiah would have been very familiar with major geopolitical developments that were happening at this time. New threats were popping up to Judah everywhere. 
And so as Uzziah's health began to collapse in his exile with leprosy, Isaiah would see a lot of reasons to be worried. Godliness and prosperity and stability seemed very soon to become wickedness and judgment and chaos. And so in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah probably had a lot on his mind. But in the middle of this tumult, God intervenes. And the first thing that God does is he answers Isaiah's uncertainty about the future by revealing himself to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God gives Isaiah a vision. And in this vision, Isaiah is in the temple. But the temple that Isaiah sees is a little different than the temple as it actually stood in Jerusalem. You might remember that in the Jerusalem temple, there was a big room filled with lots of furniture. And at the back of it, there was a thick curtain. And behind that thick curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. The place where God uniquely manifested his presence on the earth. Psalm 132 says, the Ark was like the footstool of God. It was the place where heaven met earth. But in this vision, the curtain and the ark are gone. And in their place sits a throne. And on this throne sits the Lord himself. Isaiah is allowed to see the spiritual reality that stood behind this symbolic furniture in the temple. And that reality points to one significant truth, which is this. There is a king in the temple. And it's not Uzziah or Jotham or Ahaz. It is Yahweh. The Lord reigns from his temple. And though human leaders may come and go, in truth, nothing has really changed. Instability and crisis on the earth do not indicate instability or crisis in the cosmos. Because the Lord's in command. Now, you might be surprised to hear that Isaiah says that he saw the Lord. Especially if you were with us at Sunday school last week. Because if you were with us for Sunday school last week, you'll remember one of the attributes we talked about of God is his invisibility. God is not composed of matter. God is invisible. So how can Isaiah say that he saw God, who 1 Timothy 6 says no one can ever see or has seen? Well, the answer is this is a vision. Isaiah is not physically standing before the unveiled glory of God. God is giving him a revelatory experience. And God has built this revelation so as to allow Isaiah to see something of himself. But even though Isaiah says that he saw the Lord, what does he really see? Well, he's able to, to discern that God is in some way greatly exalted. But beyond that, he says nothing except that the train of his robe filled the temple. In this, Isaiah's vision is very similar to other visions of God that the Old Testament prophets saw. I think probably the greatest of these visions is in Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel sees God's throne. And he sees angels around God's throne. And Ezekiel tries to look at who is on the throne. And we read that he saw one with the likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. Like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. 
tries to look at who is on God's throne and he sees brightness and colors and glowing and fire and something that looks vaguely human, but he can't really get a clear look. So many qualifiers and metaphors here because man cannot look on God's face and live. And in the same way, Isaiah will tell us in a moment that in his vision, the temple was filled with smoke, which would have obscured his view. And so he could see that God was exalted, but he didn't see God's face. He didn't even really see most of what God was wearing in this vision. He just saw the train, the long part that follows the robe. But that train filled the whole temple room, pointing to the truth that God's presence is not contained in a temple but God's glory fills the whole earth and more than that, the whole cosmos. Because God cannot be confined by space and time. God is what theologians call immense. God is unbounded by dimension. And that's what Isaiah sees of God, the train of his robe. But that's not all that he sees. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees some holy angels called the seraphim. The word probably means fiery ones. This is the only place in the whole Bible where angels are called seraphim. And this name may point to either something about their appearance, that it seemed fiery, or the fact that they seem to tend an altar that contains burning coals. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But as God is seated on his throne in the temple, these seraphim stand around his throne. You say, that's odd. Well, not really. In the ancient world, if there was a king around, he got to sit and everybody else had to stand in his presence. And that's how this is. But more than just standing, these angels fly about. They each have six wings. Two are used for flight, and the other four are used to cover themselves. We don't know why they cover their feet. It might be some expression of humility. They cover their faces because apparently even they cannot behold God in an unveiled way. And they call back and forth to each other. And what do they proclaim? The utter holiness of God. In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you double it. So if you want to talk about a lot of gold, you say, gold, gold. That means a lot of gold. And this doubling of nouns for emphasis happens all throughout the Old Testament. Well, here we have a noun that is not doubled, but it is tripled. In fact, this is the only place in the whole Old Testament where a noun appears in triplicate. So here we don't just have emphasis. We don't just have a lot of something. We have the ultimate, the supreme expression of it. The supreme, ultimate expression of what? Of holiness. In Hebrew, the noun is kadosh. You say, well, what is holiness? Well, this word appears in a lot of the languages of the ancient Near East, the same word. And it usually refers to anything that pertains to divinity, anything connected to a god. And that's how this word is often used in Hebrew which explains why in the Old Testament various objects like bowls and plates could be called holy because these objects were set apart or they were consecrated for God's exclusive use. They were holy unto the Lord. And from this definition, then, people have said things like holiness means being set apart or holiness means being other or different than that which is commonplace in our world. And that's all very true. 
But I don't think that's the primary idea here. Because if holiness just means distinctness from the world, and that's what the seraphim are glorifying God for, then that would mean that God's central attribute here refers not to anything within himself, but with respect to what he has created. And that cannot be right. Because God is distinct, separate, before, and over creation. God's defining attribute cannot be something that he has, he has created in time. It must be something that is within himself. And so I think holiness refers to something more innate than just that God is distinct from this world. Say, so, okay, well, what is this innate quality within God? I think we get the answer in Leviticus 19.1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then God commands Israel to conform to a standard of ethical perfection. This, I think, is the essence of God's holiness, if we can dare to say that. It is his absolute moral perfection, his absolute righteousness. And in that, he is vastly different than everything in this universe. But God is the central hub of all that is good and glorious. And I, I think that's the idea. And in this, friends, God is not merely kadosh. He's not merely holy. He's not merely kadosh kadosh. He's not merely very holy. No, he is kadosh kadosh kadosh. He is supremely and ultimately infinite in his holiness. And not only is God thrice holy, but God's glory, which is the outward manifestation of his brilliance and his resplendence and his excellence, it cannot be contained. Not by the holy of holies, not by the temple, no, the whole earth, the whole creation abounds and testifies to the superlative radiance of God's excellence. That's what the seraphim are adoring, God's holiness and God's glory. And beyond this verbal testimony, there's another witness to the awesomeness of God. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The temple itself attests the presence of Almighty God. Its structural elements are shaken by His presence. This is the natural response to the presence of God throughout the whole Bible. Exodus 19.18 says, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Sinai shook when the Lord manifested himself there. And not only did it shake, but it gave off smoke because God descended in fire. Seven times in the Old Testament, God's holiness is described with reference to fire. Christ's future return is described the same way. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. When the thrice holy creator manifests himself within the creation, the creation reacts violently. And this is true in Isaiah's vision. And the temple shakes and it is filled with smoke. And this is what Isaiah tells us he sees. He sees God. He sees the holy angels. He sees their worship. He sees the temple shaking to its core because God is there. It's a scene beyond our wildest imagining. And what does this revelation do to Isaiah? Well, that's the second thing that happens in this passage. Is that Isaiah's true awareness of the holy God leads to the true awareness of his own sin. 
As Isaiah beholds this, he doesn't say, wow, this is better than HD. Let me get some popcorn. He doesn't start singing God's praises even. He is overcome with terror. Because to behold the utter holiness of God is to suffer the immediate exposure of our own unholiness. To stand in God's infinitely glorious presence means that we must suffer the profound awareness of our own sin. And that's what Isaiah experiences. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Over the next 60 years of ministry, Isaiah will pronounce many woes upon people. But here's the first time he pronounces woe as he pronounces it on himself. I am doomed. I am under the wrath of God because he sees his sin. And so he says, I am lost. This word lost is often uh, in Hebrew basically means like something like the silence of death. Isaiah is aware he has offended this God. And in God's presence, he intuitively grasps what the Apostle Paul would later spell out. The wages of sin is death. If God is this majestic and splendorous in his holiness, then to stand before God in sin necessitates utter destruction. What is the sin that Isaiah has become so painfully aware of? What has caused him to cry out in despair and self-condemnation? Look at verse 5. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says he has unclean lips. His speech is polluted. He uses words in a way that do not reflect or befit the holiness of God. Instead, he's talking in the same way the unbelieving culture around him talks. And that's why he despairs. Now, when we think about sin... Sins of the tongue are probably not the first sins we think about. We think about things that are more obviously wicked, we would think. Murder or theft or adultery. We might be surprised that God's presence causes Isaiah's mind to immediately run to how he speaks. We might think, oh, well, that means Isaiah doesn't have very many serious sins. I don't think that's the idea at all. Instead, I think there are two things we need to learn from this. First... Standing in the presence of God doesn't only reveal the sins that we consider to be major. Because God is so holy and righteous that his presence totally exposes and underlines all the sins that we've committed, including the ones that we would normally think are pretty minor, that we wouldn't think about. And the reason for this is that even the sins that may seem to us to be the smallest betray the inner conditions of our hearts. Every seemingly little sin that we commit still shows just how far away from God's standard of total perfection we are, the standard of his own holiness. Our sinful speech is the product of a sinful mind and a sinful heart. We might say, well, yeah, I tell some dirty jokes because I think they're funny, and I curse and I insult people, but I mean, everybody gets mad in traffic, right? But that sort of speech reflects a heart that does not care about reflecting the holiness of God. It reveals a heart that enjoys the flesh too much, or the world. It reflects a mind that thinks too lowly of God and does not desire to conform to His holiness. And so even the sins that we would be likely to say are relatively trivial are major problems when we stand before God because they show how unholy we really are. And that's what Isaiah realizes. His speech patterns don't reflect God's holiness, but the worldliness of society around him, and in that he has sinned. 
And he apprehends that because he has seen the Lord. And so standing in God's presence, aware of his sin, he says, I'm doomed. And we might imagine that Isaiah is correct. God is infinitely holy. God is completely against sin. Isaiah is in God's presence guilty of sin. So now God's going to judge and destroy Isaiah, right? Well, praise God, friends. That's not what happens. Because instead, as Isaiah is in despair, as he looks up, he sees one of God's angels coming to him. And he must think, this is it. Here comes the judgment. But instead, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The angel brings a burning coal. We're told this coal has come from an altar. In the temple, there were two altars, an altar of incense and an altar of sacrifice. We're not told which coal this has come from, but because the angel speaks of taking guilt away and sin being atoned, it seems likely this has come from the altar of sacrifice, the place that God has declared blood must be shed to cover human sin and restore a right relationship to him. Now again, remember, this is a vision. This is all very symbolic. The Old Testament law doesn't say you can have your sin covered by burning your face with a piece of hot coal, right? That's not the idea here at all. The idea is God is metaphorically showing Isaiah the benefits of your faithful participation in the sacrificial system have been applied to you. And so Isaiah, you stand before God forgiven. As chapter 1 says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah is forgiven. One commentator points out several observations here that we should listen to. Number one, note that Isaiah does not contribute anything to the process of his forgiveness. God acts unilaterally to forgive him here. Second, God applies his forgiving grace to Isaiah exactly where he needs it. Isaiah says his lips are unclean, and that's what God cleans. God deals with our sin head on. And third, God doesn't just deal with the sin that Isaiah confessed. He cleanses all of Isaiah's guilt. Like 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what happens to Isaiah here. So even though Isaiah stood before the thrice holy God in a state of guilt, he is not destroyed. Why? Because, friends, God's holiness does not only lead God to bring wrath upon the unrepentant. His holiness also causes him to act in a gracious and merciful way towards those whom he purposes to save. There's a very interesting passage to this effect in the book of Hosea. God is speaking to a bunch of people that he's just disciplined. And he says in Hosea 11.9, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Dane Ortland in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, points out, we might expect that God would say to his sinful people, I am the Holy One in your midst, therefore I will come in wrath. But that is not what God says. Why not? Because God's already disciplined his people. And having done so, God says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. See, God's holiness does compel him to correctively discipline his people, but he doesn't want to destroy his people. 
Instead, God's holiness works together with his compassion to produce forgiving grace for his people. And that is every bit as much an expression of God's holiness as is his wrath towards the unrepentant. And so in his holiness, God forgives Isaiah. God revealed Isaiah's sin not to condemn him, but to forgive him. But that's not the end of the passage. Because now that God has addressed Isaiah's sin, we come to the reason that God has given Isaiah this vision, which is that God means to call Isaiah into service. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God says he's going to send someone to represent him. And interestingly, God here speaks of himself using a plural pronoun, us. Why does God refer to himself using this plural pronoun? Well, this may be what we call the royal we, right? From antiquity down to our own time, sometimes monarchs talk about themselves as a plurality, right? We are not amused. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe God is speaking on behalf of his entire royal court, including those angels we just met. That's possible. Or perhaps this reflects the doctrine of the Trinity, that there are a plurality of persons within the one God. That also may be what is meant here. But God means to send someone, and he says, who will go for us? Now understand, God is not confused about who he means to send. Of course God knows who he wants to send. That's why Isaiah is the one having this vision, because God means to send him. But God is doing something important here. He calls Isaiah to serve by showing Isaiah there is a need for his service or an opportunity to serve. You know, in our day and age, a lot of people love to talk about being called, especially when they want to go into vocational ministry. I've heard some ridiculous stories people tell about how they had a vision and God set them apart for ministry at the age of eight or whatever. I think passages like Isaiah 6 sometimes mean lead people to, to the very mistaken idea that if you're going to go into some kind of speaking ministry, you've got to have an amazing visionary experience from God. I think it totally misses the point of what's going on here. What does it actually mean to be called by God into service? I think the first thing it means is that God has shown you there's a place where your service is needed. That's what's happening here. God makes Isaiah aware that there's an opportunity for service by asking this question in his hearing, who will go for us? God shows Isaiah someone's got to go. And because God revealed that to Isaiah, chances are it's Isaiah whom God means to send. That's how calling usually works, friends. If you see a need, most likely it's you that God wants to, to plug that need. And Isaiah hears this opportunity, and he is elated. He has just been forgiven this terrible guilt, and now he steps forward and he says, I want to serve you, God. He volunteers with obedient faith and a willingness to serve. Verse 8, then I said, here I am, send me. He volunteers to render the service that God is seeking. And friends, this is the right response that we should have when we perceive that there is a need for service to be rendered on God's behalf. I found that if you want to make a bunch of Christians humble really quickly, the best thing to do is ask them to serve. You'll get a lot of answers like this. Oh, you want me to serve? I'm not gifted for that. Let someone else have the honor. Oh, so humble, right? Friends, if God makes you aware of a need or an opportunity for service, step forward in confidence 
If you don't think you can handle it, that's good news. Step forward in faith because God equips those that he calls, right? It's not about your innate abilities. God will help you to discharge the duty that he wants you to discharge. Here, Isaiah becomes aware God means to make him a prophet. And he doesn't say, well, God, I don't know how to speak. I wouldn't know what to say. No, he desires to be used of God. It's a godly ambition, and God honors it. And so Isaiah gets his commission to serve. But what will his service entail? Well, as is often the case with serving God, he doesn't find out the details until after he's been enlisted. But now God's going to tell Isaiah what this ministry is going to look like. And this isn't the sort of preaching ministry most, most folks want to have. Verse 9. And God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God's going to send Isaiah to speak for him. But what God tells Isaiah is, I'm going to send you to preach, but my purpose is not that your preaching is going to lead to revival and repentance. No, I'm sending you to preach because your preaching will make your audience reject what you have to say so that I can give them the judgment that they deserve. Isaiah is to speak the truth clearly, but as he speaks, no one will accept what he is saying. They will not understand what he is telling them. He will warn them about judgment, and he will watch as they ignore his warnings and head right into it. And that is not failure on Isaiah's part. That is God's intention. Isaiah is to reveal God to the people of Judah, and this revelation will bore them and confuse them straight into destruction. That is what God wants. How can that be? Doesn't 2 Peter 3 say God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Yes, that's absolutely true. We've seen that in how God dealt with Isaiah. God graciously forgave Isaiah, right? But there is also a sense in which God's holiness compels him to bring furious wrath upon the unrepentant. And that's what's going to happen to Judah here. God is going to judge. And one way God judges people is he allows them to be blinded to spiritual truth. And God is going to use Isaiah's preaching to blind the unrepentant people of his society so that they get what's coming to them, the holy justice of God. Now this doesn't cheer Isaiah up hearing this. Who would be cheered up by this? You're going to be my instrument of judgment. Verse 11, Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? Isaiah cries out. He doesn't want to have this duty. He's willing to serve, but not this. Is this just to be a short-term part of my ministry, God? But God tells him, unfortunately, it's not. Verse 11, And God said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. God says, I'm bringing judgment. I'm going to destroy cities. I'm going to exile people. 90% of the nation will die or go into slavery. And then I'm going to judge it again. And until this is all done, Isaiah, you keep preaching to these people to harden their hearts. Wow. That's not what Isaiah wanted to hear. And yet you know what? God is gracious. Because look at how this vision ends. Not with the promise of judgment, but with great hope. Yes, Judah will be judged. Yes, many will be slain and exiled. Yes, the nation will be like a tree stump, which is cut down and burned. 
But verse 13 ends like this. The holy seed is its stump. Despite the promise of judgment, there is a slight glimmer of hope. Though the tree of the nation will fall, there is still life in the stump. A seed survives. The promise of a new beginning, of new life. What is this seed? Well, we're told it's holy. It reflects God's character. And when you look at other references in Isaiah, we learn what this holy seed is. It's a promise that God will bring the figure that chapter 4 calls the branch. The figure who will usher in God's purposes for salvation and judgment. He is the figure, chapter 11 says, is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He is new life in the royal lineage of David and Jesse. He is a king whom the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon. A king empowered by the Holy Spirit to do justice and righteousness. Chapter 11 says he will transform this world. Chapter 9 says he will bring in an everlastingly good government. Chapter 7 says he will literally be God with us. Chapter 53 says he will die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin so that the people of God can receive his forgiveness. Yes, judgment must come in the short term, but judgment's only a part of God's plan because what God ultimately intends is to deliver from Judah and from every nation on earth a people for his own possession who will live in his glorious presence forever. And God will accomplish this by sending the holy seed. Jesus Christ will be born 700 years after Isaiah prophesied it. Jesus will execute the Father's plans and purposes. And that's the vision God gave Isaiah. Now in just the last few minutes here, I want to turn to our second point. And, and, and that point is this. What should we take from what we've seen here? I think there are two really obvious points of application I'll run through quickly. And then maybe a less obvious one that I'll conclude with. First, we've seen that this passage shows us where we should look in uncertain times. Isaiah had lots of reasons to be anxious. Political turmoil, looming crises, bad news everywhere. It would be easy for him to despair. But God didn't want Isaiah to fix his eyes on the circumstances around him. God wants Isaiah to look through the eyes of faith to see that God is still on his throne, that God's plan is still being carried out, and that God will accomplish his good purposes. And that's what God wants for us today, friends. We must not live and die by the ups and downs of the news cycle. We must not imagine that our futures are solidified or jeopardized by whichever politicians come to power. Because despite all of the change and transitoriness of our circumstances, in the end, God is still on his throne and he is still at work. So don't despair, friends. Trust the Lord. Second, we've seen that Isaiah has responded to a call to service. He goes from dreading God's judgment in one instant to being forgiven the next and volunteering to serve. And he has a heart of gratefulness because all that he has been forgiven. And friends, I want us to, enc to encourage you to find ways to serve God inside the church and outside. Use your life to glorify God and say thank you to God for how much he's done for you and for me. Friends, the more we apprehend how much God has done for us, the more we will be willing to do for him. And the, the, if we say, well, I don't really want to get involved in service, somebody else's problem, I would challenge you, friend, consider what God has done for you. My guess is you haven't thought about that nearly enough. But this brings us to our last point of application. And what I want us to see here are some important parallels between what ex Isaiah experienced in this vision and our own lives. Now, you might say, well, I've never had a vision like Isaiah did. 
Fair enough. Very few people in world history ever did. A lot of Christians in our time seem to miss this point. They think we ought to be going around seeking fabulous private revelation all the time. But friends, I see very little evidence that these sorts of things still happen in our day and age. I don't think we should draw from this passage that we need to seek private revelation. Instead, what I want you to see here is that much that Isaiah experiences in this fantastic vision is what God still does in our lives. Not through a shocking and miraculous experience, but through the ordinary process of grace. Let me demonstrate this. What happens first in this vision? God reveals himself to Isaiah. Friends, today we know that God reveals himself in nature, Romans 1 says. In the Bible, Hebrews 1 says. And chiefly by his son. God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus has returned to heaven. So today we know about him reliably only through the scriptures. But Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And you know the gospels make this very point. In John chapter 12, we read this. Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. That's a quotation from our passage, right? And here's what John says about it. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the him? The next phrase tells us. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. John says the him who Isaiah saw, the him whose glory shook the temple, is the him who the Pharisees opposed. It's Jesus. Jesus is this God whom Isaiah was in awe of. Jesus is God incarnate. That's why Jesus can say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because the Son and the Father share the same divine nature with the Spirit. One God eternally existing in three persons. So God has revealed himself. If you're not a believer today, I want to say to you, God has been revealed to you in this passage. You know God exists. You know God is holy. But if you're a believer, then you know, friends, at some point God revealed himself to you because somebody spoke to you about Jesus. You didn't have some fantastic vision, but they shared the gospel with you, right? And as you received this revelation of God, what happened? Like Isaiah, you became aware of your sin. Because the apprehension of God makes us aware of how unholy we are. Usually it doesn't happen as dramatically as it did to Isaiah. But here's what Jesus says how this happens. John 16, 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit makes us aware of our sin and guilt. And he usually does that through God's word. Which Hebrews 4 says is able to discern the, th the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As God's Spirit speaks through God's Word, He reveals to us the sinfulness of our hearts and our deeds. And that tells us the truth of the next verse in Hebrews 4. No creature is hidden from His sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. We are accountable to God. We all stand guilty before God in ourselves. And friends, you need to know this. We may apprehend our guilt here and now to some degree, but one day we will stand before God in a very different context. One day the vision Isaiah had will be similar to what we experience. Because Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed to man once to die and then judgment. Friends, we will stand before this majestic God for judgment. We will stand in his presence as the surroundings shake, and he will turn all of his attention on you and me for judgment. And in that moment, friend, you don't want to stand guilty before God. 
Because Psalm 5 says, you're not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. And if we stand before God for judgment while we are dead in our sins, our unclean lips and all of the rest of our uncleanness, every other way we have resembled the unbelieving world will lead God to exercise his furious, just wrath upon us. But we've seen today that God's holiness does not only bring judgment. It also offers grace and mercy to those who belong to him. And so today, friends, you can be rightly related to God by exercising repentant faith in Jesus Christ. Recognize that your sins are awful, that we have failed to live up to God's holiness, that we deserve his wrath. Turn away from the path you have been on and turn to Jesus in faith. He is God who took on true humanity. He lived the perfect sinless life we could not live. He died the death that we deserve and he is risen. Friend, trust in Christ and ask him for mercy. And what happened to Isaiah will happen to you. You will be cleansed. You will be forgiven. You will be enabled to stand in his presence. And friend, if you know Christ in a saving way like this, you have experienced the power of the gospel. You don't need to fear standing in the presence of God. Now, make no mistake. When you behold him, you will fall down on your face like a dead person. So it happened to the Apostle John. But you don't have to worry in that moment that wrath is coming upon you. But you can expect to receive the same response John received when he was blown over by the glory of Christ, which is that Jesus laid his hand on him and said, Fear not. We can expect to receive comfort and encouragement from Christ. But I last want to say to you today, friends, if you have been saved, you have also been called like Isaiah was. You're called to holiness, just like ancient Israel was. The call is the same. Be holy, for I am holy. If today... You look at yourself and say, I am a person of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Or I'm a person of hateful anger living in a hateful and angry society. Or I am a person of lust living in a lustful society. Or I am a person of greed living in a greedy society. Or wherever it is that your life has conformed to the patterns of the world. Or where my life has conformed to the patterns of the world or the flesh. Friends, we must take care of God's business in our lives. That's first. Second, God calls us to service in the church. Find a need and volunteer. Discover your spiritual gift and use it. And third, God tells us to proclaim his great uh, declaration, to participate in the Great Commission. We may not be prophets like Isaiah, but 2 Peter 1 says, We have the prophetic word more sure. We know where the prophecies point. They point to the gospel of Jesus. And we can proclaim that prophetic word to those around us. And as we walk in that call, two things will happen. First, some people will get saved. And second, some people will be confirmed in judgment. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked, and that's how it always will work. That is the will of God. It will draw some and repel others. Second Corinthians 2 says this. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. We can't worry about who will fall into what category. That's not our job. We're just to proclaim the truth and let God work it out. But friends, even if, as you proclaim God's word, you wind up experiencing what Isaiah did. If you see rejection. If you see people again and again and again choosing judgment, even then, don't despair. Because God's ultimate purpose is not judgment. 
Yes, judgment will someday fall. But just as God said to Isaiah to hope because the holy seed is coming, friends, we too can hope because the holy seed is coming again. And he is bringing with him new Jerusalem and eternal bliss for all who believe, where we will stand around the throne of God forever, endlessly praising the one who is holy, holy, holy.